welcome to Shelf Healing Work and Life. This week, we have got the Right Honourable Lord Howarth of Newport, CBE, lovely Alan with us, and Professor Helen Chatterjee, MBE, to talk about the new UCL Master of Arts and Science in Creative Health, which should be very fun and entertaining podcast to start. So if if you guys would like to do a little brief introduction of yourselves, Professor Helen, if, if you'd like to go first. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. So I'm Helen Chatterjee. I'm a professor of biology. I work across two departments at UCL, UCL Biosciences and UCL Arts and Sciences. And well, I've worked at UCL since 1996, a long time I came here to do my PhD in zoology. I ended up looking after the Grant Museum for 10 years, and that's what got me interested in museums and arts and culture and how they support society, I guess. And that's really what our mask in creative health is about. So um, I'm looking forward to sharing more thoughts and ideas about that with you guys. Brilliant. And Alan, would you like to, to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Alan Huzz. Very glad to join you today. I used to be a member of Parliament. I'm now a member of the House of Lords. At one time, in the quite distant past now, I was Minister of the Arts, and it was at that time that I developed a particularly close interest in the potential nexus between the arts and health. And that's something I've continued to follow and work on actively. And it's through that that I met Helen in the context of the work we were doing on the all-party parliamentary group on arts, health and well-being, which I founded and chaired. And we produced an inquiry called Creative Health, which was published in 2017. And it has lots to say about our hopes and aspirations for research, for education in the arts and health field. And Helen and I are now working closely on that. We're both fellow trustees of the newly formed National Centre for Creative Health. So that's how I come to be joining Helen on this podcast with you. Brilliant. So I think we should probably start off with defining, if we can, the term of creative health, what it means, what it means sort of the general public as well as the individual. Well, Creative Health was the title of the report that the all-party parliamentary group on arts, health and well-being published following our three-year inquiry from 2014 to 2017. We had some difficulty thinking of a good title for the report, and I offered a prize of a bottle of House of Lords champagne for anybody who could come up with the best idea, and Creative Health was the best idea, and so that's, that's the title we gave it. And it's been very interesting to see how that phrase has gained currency and is now, now pretty widely used. As to its precise definition, well, that's something that we can explore as we continue the discussion. Yeah, I think Alan's point about the, the title for the inquiry report, so that's obviously where we've drawn the name of the mask from. But we've uh, been thinking about this a lot as well, haven't we, Alan, in terms of our new National Centre for Creative Health, named after the inquiry report. And then we've been coming up with definitions. And this is the definition we've settled on, which is creating the conditions and opportunities for art, creativity and culture to be embedded in the health of the public. And we're just excited to explore these ideas. I mean, for me, that is about community assets, including places like museums, libraries, artists, art centres, and opportunities to access arts, culture. I would include in that creativity and nature and the outdoors to improve the health of the public. So what we might call non-clinical approaches to supporting health. We're beginning to see uh, the joining, the linking of two 
very different institutional cultures. The, the world of the arts and creativity, arts and culture, which um, I've always thought has a huge contribution to make to the to the improvement of health and well-being uh, in our society, and the world of formal world of health and social care, and there was wonderful work being done by individual practitioners for many years past, and you track back. Uh, the 1990s find superb work, particularly concentrated in the northwest of England, but also in London too, for example, the work that Susan Loppard developed at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, the research on that by Rosalia Starikov back in the 90s. But uh, these were fairly isolated endeavours. And um, for whatever reason, these two cultures, these two sets of institutions, didn't easily relate to each other. It is something we we explored in the Creative Health Report. But what we've been trying to do is to bridge that gap and more than bridge that gap, get a real integration, a holistic approach between practitioners in the arts and cultural fields and practitioners in the healthcare and, and, and social care fields. It's starting to happen. It wasn't prevented by legislation, it wasn't prevented by any by any formal barriers. The difficulties were attitudinal, and what was needed was a culture change. And culture changes take a long time to brew up, or perhaps I should say scramble, because it's a bit like scrambled eggs. You, you know, you you stir with with your wooden spoon for what seems a terribly long time over rather a low gas, and then and then it scrambles, and then it starts to come together. And we are at the moment of scrambling now. Yeah. And I think it's it's a wonderful way to sort of formalize the idea that well-being can help people, non-clinical things such as nature or theatre or reading or any of the huge variety of, of things that come under that, that umbrella term of creativity and creative health that can help improve well-being because if the well-being of a person is better then their general health is going to be better for a, a huge variety of reasons. So that nicely leads us on to the mask in creative health at UCL, which is a brand new program coming 2021. So Helen, if you want to sort of give us a brief rundown of what the mask is, what it's going to cover, who is hopefully going to be coming on the course? I mean, that, that sounds like a big, a big chunk I've just given you. <laughs> Feel free to throw it back to us. Mm, yeah, well, the first thing to say, I guess, is that we've created a completely new qualification in order to host our Creative Health Master's programme. So because, as you've already heard, that the whole nature of creative health is inherently interdisciplinary. We're drawing from multiple disciplines. We're bringing together research, policy and practice. And so we really felt that either an MSc nor an MA were quite right in terms of the types of qualification that students would be graduating with. So we basically created a completely new qualification. Obviously, UCL is pretty good at that. We've already created a BASC, our Bachelors of Arts and Sciences. And so we felt that a new master's qualification was required really to represent that interdisciplinarity. 
In terms of the focus of the mask, it's really about drawing together, like I say, that research policy and practice. So we want students to have this really excellent grounding and understanding of that research base, but also how that links into the really fantastic practice. Alan has just alluded to some of that. And what you can see in the Creative Health Inquiry Report, which I really recommend anybody who's interested in the mask, please have a look at that, because this is really what was the foundation for us pulling together the programme. In that report, there's over 1,000 references to research articles, peer-reviewed articles, grey literature, programmes, projects um, that really speak to what do we mean by creative health, from drawn from across the world. And they uh, allude to both the sorts of preventative and remedial aspects of engaging with arts, culture and creativity and how that can support health and well-being. So what we want is that students on the programme will get a really good grounding on all of those aspects of research policy and practice, both in a very um, scholarly way, but also in a very applied way. So I think a key feature, as well as doing these sort of core modules that you would expect in understanding those dis different disciplines and how they're put, put, pulled together, is also really importantly is the community partners and the other partners that we'll be working with. You've already heard about our partnership with the National Centre for Creative Health and the APPG for Arts, Health and Wellbeing. We've also got a whole range of other both national, regional and local partners that are supporting the programme. Sometimes that's on an individual level. It might be a yoga therapist um, coming in to deliver a session. It might be us doing a green gym session in the park, visiting museums to do programmes that they've been running, say, for people with dementia. But there's also opportunities to work with partners through our dissertations. So students will undertake a research project with a community partner. And that's, I think, really where they'll get to the heart of understanding what do we mean by creative health, because they'll be working alongside providers, programme organisers, developers, and most importantly, participants. And I think people with lived experience are really a key aspect to the programme. So we have a whole module dedicated to understanding the role of lived experience and public engagement with research. So through the programme, I think students will get a real understanding of what we mean by creative health. But another key feature of the programme is really about understanding health inequalities. And this is a key feature of the work that we're doing around the National Centre for Creative Health. So what we know is, um, and really the pandemic has highlighted this, hasn't it, over the past year, that um, people from disadvantaged backgrounds, vulnerable backgrounds, have been much more adversely and disproportionately affected by the pandemic. But that is absolutely what we would predict if we look at the work of people like Michael Marmot and others who talk about the issues with deprivation and living in poverty. And we know that those people are worse affected by things like pandemics, but also other comorbidities. So it's really not more important than ever, I think, that we have this understanding of how we can improve people's lives, but particularly those people who I think are living in poverty and may benefit even more from having access to these sorts of non-clinical approaches of sources of support to support their health and well-being and tackle inequalities. Well, it's a very exciting programme indeed. And I'm particularly excited because it was recommendation number eight in the Creative Health Report in which we, we, we recommended that the education of clinicians, public health specialists, and other health and care professionals should include accredited modules on the evidence base and practical use of the arts for health and well-being outcomes. And Helen has really taken up that challenge and sees that opportunity with the mask. Um, and it's so timely 
uh, not least because of the challenges that COVID has thrown into a very stark and poignant relief during the last year or so. And if through this, this master's course, we can help to uh, improve understanding, we, we can develop a cadre of people who have been highly trained in this field uh, with, with uh, recognition of the academic issues involved and the links between academic work and practical work, the, indeed the integration of the academic and the practical, then I think that will be a, a very important step forward. I hope that it will be a model for similar courses to be developed in other universities too, because all across the country we need people who can help to upgrade the whole effort, which is not in any way to disparage the work that's already being done, but to say that uh, too often our arts and health practice has lacked rigorous formulation, has lacked serious methodological consideration, and needs to be developed within a, frame, a better conceptual framework and on a better base of evidence, so that this course will help people to appreciate the evidence that is there, to understand it, to interrogate it, to question it, but also to help develop the evidence base, which is badly needed. Because if we're going to persuade clinicians, and if we're going to persuade funders, that the arts and culture have something really important to offer to them in their agendas, they need convincing evidence to justify the expenditure, to justify the commitment. Not that research evidence is going to be the whole story, because it also needs attitudinal change, it needs culture change uh, within the professional establishments. But without the evidence base, that certainly isn't going to happen. Definitely. Helen, you've probably got some fabulous examples knocking around from sort of the research end of how arts and culture supports good health. Do you want to share a few of those if you've, if you've got any off the top of your head? Yeah, I mean, it's such a, that's such a big question because there really <laughs> are so many, so, as Alan says, such fantastic um, projects, programmes that have been running for many years. And, you know, I've come from the museum sector, uh, university museum sector originally, and you know, we've got some fantastic projects through support from the Arts and Humanities Research Council who've been really great at supporting research in this area. Uh, not all research councils have been as supportive. <laughs> We're hoping that the others will take up their mantle. But um, so just one research project that we ran for um, three years and, and finished a couple of years ago, Museums on Prescription. And, and we had such a great privilege there to work with many museums across uh, both London and Kent. Big ones like the British Museum through to much smaller ones like um, the Postal Museum, our own museums here at UCL, uh, museums in Kent like the Beanie House of Art and Knowledge. And, you know, those are just a few museums that have been doing fantastic work in this area. They work with Art Gallery Time and we're archives and museums. More recently, we've been working with Entelechi Arts. I guess the thing that we found, no matter what uh, organisation we work with, when we've been working, we tend to work with audiences who have predominantly been excluded or they're new audiences that those organisations or artists are looking to work with. Um, and that has included refugees and asylum seekers, mental health service users, people with dementia, stroke survivors. 
And really, no matter what cohort of participants we've worked with, we've really found very similar outcomes, uh, which I think really speak to essentially what it is about arts and cultural engagement that helps to support health and well-being. We see several commonalities. Lots of people talking about the positive social experiences that they get out of that sort of engagement. And we know our research has shown that this leads directly to reduction in social isolation. Another key feature of arts cultural engagement is opportunities for learning and acquiring new skills. Now, of course, we know that's important for good cognitive health, um, but we also know it's really important for just thinking about life skills and thinking about, you know, getting into employment or getting into different types of employment. And again, volunteering with an arts organisation or doing programmes within these sorts of organisations we know leads to those sorts of opportunities. Increases in things like optimism, hope, enjoyment, sense of belonging, self-esteem, sense of identity, inspiration. And I think really key, the arts and creativity thing is this opportunities for meaning making. And I think, you know, Alan mentioned the word holistic. And we often talk about um, in our area that the challenges that we're faced in terms of um, the evidence base that Alan talked about and, and being held up against the, the sort of so-called clinical standard um, of something like a randomised controlled trial is really difficult to randomise for something like meaning making. Uh, meaning making is something that's so individual to people, but actually having that opportunity to do that with others, having a shared experience and to help make meaning out of your own life and that of others, dealing with those personal circumstances is actually really, really valuable. And that has direct links into what we know in terms of psychological well-being and then finally I guess the physical aspects we know that engagement the, the more the data shows that the more people engage in arts and cultural activities for example the more they visit museums and uh, arts venues the more they go to festivals or theatre uh, activities that that actually there's a direct correlation with a healthier life. It leads to people doing more visits and it leads to them being more physically active. So just the more that you engage in those activities, there's a direct correlation between uh, that and being healthy and having healthier food choices, for example. So it doesn't really matter what programme you look like. And, the, and this, I've just mentioned some there that are really fantastic. I think the key thing is what goes on in those programmes. And we're really interested in what we might call these active ingredients uh, and certainly ensuring that those key sorts of outcomes are in embedded in those sorts of programmes we know is beneficial for health and well-being. I think it's something that uh, research needs to explore further, what is actually happening in the moment of creativity, engagement with other people's creativity, or the practice of your own creativity. I think there's no doubt from, from lay observation that creativity is salutary in the sense that it generates health. We had some very impressive and really very moving testimonies from patients, service users during the All Party Parliamentary Group's inquiry. We held a series of roundtables and we brought together people from all kinds of backgrounds and disciplines, including, of course, service users. And perhaps I can mention one or two instances of, of, of what they had to say uh, and what these, what the projects were that they were talking about. One of the projects was run by a charity called Artlift in Gloucestershire, who run an arts on prescription scheme. And uh, that, is, that was founded by a general practitioner, Dr. Simon Ofer, and he's very systematically kept records of how his patients fared through this kind of social prescribing. And the cost-benefit analysis of Artlift 
showed that after six months of working with an artist, people had 37% less demand for GP appointments. And their need for hospital admissions dropped by 27%. So you can see that there were very great benefits just in terms of, 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 of costs and economies there. But the, the actual testimonies by people who benefited from this were very moving. I mean, uh, one, of, one of the participants called Russell told us, I had split up for my partner, found myself without anywhere to live and couldn't see my children. I couldn't work as I wasn't physically able to do the job and wasn't in a position mentally or financially to start a building business again. We've had a stroke. After, uh, since going to Artlift, I've had several exhibitions of my work around Gloucester. I find that painting in the style that I do in a very expressionistic way seems to help me emotionally. I no longer take any medication. Although I'm not without problems, I find that as long as I can paint, I can cope. It doesn't mean that depression is gone, but I no longer have to keep going back to my GP for more antidepressants. I just lock myself away and paint until I feel slightly better. I now mentor some people who have been through Artlift themselves, and they come and use my studio a couple of times a week to get together, paint, draw, and chat. And I can see the benefit to them over the time they've been doing it. So that was that was amazingly eloquent and, to my mind, very convincing. But um, that kind of personal subjective testimony, I think, does need... It, not authenticating, but needs perhaps a kind of academic validation before before that qualitative evidence is going to be accepted uh, by decision makers, whether they're commissioners and funders, whether they're doctors who are hesitating whether or not to to use social prescribing as part of their practice. So I think the the academic work that UCL is promoting. It's going to be very, very important in helping to convince and to, to extend this work among more people. Oh, goodness. That was fabulous. I was going to say, there was on our Team Brit episode, the Dave Player, who, who founded Team Brit, they had someone come in to look at the effects of the motorsport racing on the mental health of their drivers, who were all disabled drivers. And the the sort of research was so interesting that actually a three-year PhD got funded at Newcastle, I think it was, on the effects of motorsport on mental health, which shows, you know, that that sort of motorsport's a little bit out of creative. <laughs> but it's it's those non-clinical things that you can do that aren't medication, that that isn't you having to go to your GP every single every single week to check over everything that can that can just help lift your spirits, lift your well-being enough that actually you don't need those services as much. Not that you don't need them at all, but that the frequency of use can go down. And in January, we had a bibliotherapy shelf healing interview with Dr. Rada Modgill, who is now uh, an ambassador for the National Association of Social Prescribing, which I know the NCCH is partnered with with NASP and a few other organizations and universities. And perhaps we should chat about the NCCH and the importance of those partnerships and what that is going to mean for the for the mask as well. Just just before before we do that, perhaps I might make the point that I think it's pretty widely accepted that perhaps 20% of people who present GP appointments are judged by their by their doctors. 
not to need a, a, a medical or a pharmacological intervention, but uh, to be likely to benefit from some social intervention and some social prescription. And indeed, I, I know one general practitioner who's thought long and hard about this who would estimate that it's even a third of our patients. So um, simply by making people feel better about themselves, making them take a more positive view of their situation, which can be done very often by engaging them with others, uh, helping them break out of isolation and loneliness, uh, a huge difference can be made. Their, their lives can be made so much happier and healthier, and a very significant pressure can be lifted from the health service. Mm. I agree. And I think it is that giving them that the skills and the confidence, like you're saying, the peer support to take those next steps. So I think, uh, you know, what we're alluding to here is, you know, that these sorts of approaches and having a more active engagement with arts, culture, the outdoors in your life um, essentially helps tackle those wider social determinants of health, which we know, as Alan says, just in terms of GP visits, account for a huge amount. And, and that's why I think it's a, a really exciting to think about this in the context of inequalities as a route. Um, you know, people have been struggling with thinking about how best to tackle with inequalities. The government keeps talking about the levelling up agenda. And so we've really got some opportunities here to think about how community assets, arts, culture, museums, libraries can support mm. our societies in a way to help with that leveling, leveling up agenda? Well, the arts and culture can be a positive social determinant. Uh, and it's been demonstrated many times. For example, there's a, a programme called Creative Families run by Southwark Council, uh, their parental mental health team, together with the South London Gallery, funded by the guys in St. John's Charity, and led by artists at the gallery and local children's centres. And in a pilot phase, Creative Families worked with 46 mothers who were experiencing mental distress and 61 of their children under the age of five. Over the course of a 10-week art and craft program, mothers experienced a 77% reduction in anxiety and depression with an 86% reduction in stress. And I guess the children felt rather better too. So, um, so you know, we've got an abundance of case studies and um, not all of them uh, are as well evaluated as they should be because the, the people who are, who are running these practices, conducting these programs, often have very little funding to support them and uh, they're passionately committed to the work that, they, that they're doing. They probably haven't been trained in evaluation and uh, they don't find time for evaluation. So very often the benefit um, which if it were charted and recorded and assessed uh, in a more formally appropriate way, could then be disseminated, gets lost. It remains lasting, I'm sure, for participants. But uh, we were missing too many opportunities to generalize the benefits of excellent practice more widely through our, through our society. Let me give you one more instance, um, although I think here this is very much uh, under the auspices of, 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 um, of an NHS Health Trust, the Staying Well Project in Calderdale aims to reduce isolation and loneliness among older people and to ease pressure on health and social care resources. The evaluation has shown that um, a huge improvement in quality of life and uh, a huge mitigation of the damage of loneliness. 
three of the four hubs in this in this program showed a reduction in loneliness. Some participants also reporting improvements in their health. And it's 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 been it was originally a twelve month pilot. It's now been extended three times, and funded now by Caldwell Clinical Commissioning Group, and uh, now embraced by the new integrated care uh, system there. So that um, we, we, we've got all kinds of instances of good practice that's begun to burgeon, but which we need to we need to monitor more systematically. We need to understand what's what's truly going on, how it works, why it works, and see what can be done. Not exactly to replicate, because circumstances differ everywhere, and all human beings are are are, are, are individual. But to see how the method and the approach can be applied in other contexts. And, and Rebecca, you asked us to talk about partnerships. And I, I think Alan's really hit the nail on the head, I guess, in terms of um, that partnership is really key both to the working, but also the researcher, as Alan said, that that need for there's so many great programs out there, but they don't have the capacity necessarily or the skills always to, to evaluate everything they do all of the time. Um, but it is about building that robust evidence base that helps us learn and grow good practice uh, practice and spread that good practice. And that's really where we hope the NCCH, the National Centre for Creative Health, will fit in. And, and partnership really is key to both the mass programme, but also the National Centre for Creative Health. And Alan mentioned those integrated care systems and really the heart of that big systems change that we're seeing rolled out across England um, is about partnership. So it's really changing the way that, that um, primary care trusts, NHS trusts, local authorities and community organisations will work together to um, support health and social care across regions. Um, and the NCCH is working with a series of different integrated care systems through its hubs programme, um, including places like Gloucestershire, West Yorkshire and Harrogate, Shropshire, Telford and Wrexham and Suffolk and North East Essex, um, just to really explore, for example, how I keep calling them creative health partnerships, how they could work to support integrated care systems. Because what we know about um, the whole field of creative health is these are very complex ecosystems that we're talking about where you've got multiple partners. Sometimes those partners might be individual academics, they might be individual artists or um, creative practitioners who are supporting individuals, individual arts organisations organizations working with um, local authorities, with NHS trusts, primary care trusts, primary care networks. And so they'll be working with multiple partners, with multiple participants. But I think if we really want to think about, again, tackling health inequalities, then we've really got to look at how these systems are working and look at what changes need to happen in those systems to make the systems better, particularly for those people who need it most. Sometimes those individuals are referred to as revolving door service users, the people who use more, most services and use multiple services. They use those services because they're having multiple challenges that they often have complex health challenges, complex health needs, but they might also be having um, personal challenges, uh, behavioural challenges, societal challenges. They might have issues with housing or debt. Um, and so we've really got to have this more holistic understanding. And I think, again, that notion of creative health can really help in that way because it's not just tackling one specific health issue like depression. It's also tackling those wider social determinants that we've talked about. So I guess coming back to partnerships, that, that's really 
crucial, I think, to the working of the NCCH, but also to how the maths will fit in. So I think it's a great opportunity for the students to also work at that policy level. Um, and those sorts of links you've talked about with the National Academy for Social Prescribing. We've got many other national and regional partners that we're working with, such as the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance, which is an alliance of around 6,000 individual members across the UK um, who are working at the interface of, of arts and health, arts, culture and health on the front line, most of them. And that includes people within arts organisations. It might include therapists. It might include healthcare practitioners, social prescribing link workers. So, again, there's these fantastic national and regional networks that we're linked into that I think by working together in this strong way, particularly uh, linking in with an education opportunity like the mass, we're just really excited and, and uh, keen to draw on those sorts of partnerships that the NCCH and others can offer us. We set up the National Centre for Creative Health in response to the first recommendation in the report of the All Party Parliamentary Group to recognise that we lacked a national strategic centre which would take an overview of the development of arts and health uh, and the integration of the arts and health uh, for the public benefit. And so uh, what the NCCH exists to do is to promote the advance of good practice, promote collaboration, uh, certainly to look and see where there are, where there are areas of strength, uh, exemplary strengths, which could be more widely understood and, and the practice promoted elsewhere, and to see whether there are gaps and deficits and see what can be done to help to fill those, um, and to inform policy and delivery. And uh, so that needs a, means a, a whole tentacular network of contacts and uh, some pretty relentless activism, uh, a good deal of nagging and buttonholing but uh, increasingly, we find that uh, we're actually getting welcome. And uh, there's been a, a dramatic trans transformation of attitudes uh, in the Department of Health and NHS England since we began our work, or since the all-party group began its work, and developing a pace, uh, the foundation of the National Academy for Social Prescribing is quite a turning point. We were very pleased that Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, cited the All Party Parliamentary Group's report, Creative Health, in a speech to King's Fund in 2018, and has put the emphasis that he has in policy on preventative strategies. Of course, COVID has dominated everything for the last 12, 15 months. But nonetheless, uh, it's, it's, it's been a really major change that the Department of Health is now committed in a way that I don't think it previously was to preventative strategies. And that's a huge opportunity for the arts and health movement because we have so much to contribute. And I think it is increasingly being recognized, not least because of the epidemic of loneliness, the, the mental health issues that have come into great prominence, sadly, particularly associated with COVID. So, uh, and Helen mentioned the the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance with 6,000 members, many of them working creatively in the front line to help people uh, live with their fear, live with bereavement, live with long COVID, live with the horrors of this, of this pandemic, and demonstrate in that practice that uh, the arts and health can help us all to feel more human, 
to act more humanely towards each other and to learn to thrive even in this kind of adversity. Definitely. And I think something that you've both mentioned quite a lot throughout this this whole chat we've been having is sort of seeing individuals as fully rounded people and not just focusing in on the illness that they have gone to their GP to see, but you're seeing them as a whole person and trying to help treat the whole person to improve their well-being in order to, almost as a side effect, you know, decrease their, the, the problems associated with their, with their illness or to make their lives feel better. If it's, if it's a chronic illness that's not going to go away, you can still make people feel much more comfortable and happy in their lives. I think that's right. I, I think everybody has a potential for creativity in their lives, whether, whether to draw, sing, dance. The term creativity is a little bit formidable. And I think if you challenge people to creativity in quotes, to be creative in quotes, uh, they might might feel a bit shy, some of them, some not. But um, it's, it, it, it's true. And uh, with the right training and with the right help, um, the uh, social prescribing link workers, for example, and people working in a whole plethora of, of arts and health organizations across the country can embolden people, give them confidence. And in the... In, in day-to-day activities of the most normal kind that are perhaps insufficiently appreciated, but which have become more appreciated through the experience of lockdown and the pandemic, simply pausing to, to observe the beauties of nature around you, simply uh, admiring imaginative, kindly behavior and, and, uh, and, and acting imaginatively and kindly yourself you're beginning to you're beginning to develop your own creativity, and uh, we don't want to bureaucratize this. We don't want to, uh, to, to 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 make this feel somehow remote or, or or develop disciplines that are so rigorous that people are scared of. But at the same time, I think it's really important to understand what these everyday human processes really are, and to help people enlarge that scope for imagination and creativity in their day-to-day personal lives. Definitely. And Helen, what sort of people are you hoping are going to apply for and get on to the mask at UCL this this coming autumn? Well, I guess somebody who's up for a challenge really about living and working in a, in a different way, in a more creative way, as Alan says. So we're, we're really looking to train, a, I guess, a new generation of what you might call socially engaged scholars or practitioners as you've heard, there are changes afoot. We've talked about the integrated care systems. as many other changes. We talked about um, partnership and there's increased discussion. We hope it will happen about cross-government working and all of these new ways of working. We, we need people who can meet those changing needs that we see across health, social care, the voluntary third sector, but where we can really put personalised care and that person-centred approach you just mentioned, Rebecca, at the heart of it, where we can place social prescribing higher up on the agenda, health equity and the patient experience and where that's all mainstream. So it's not sort of nice to have or an add-on. So I guess what we're looking for is that people who are interested in that and people who want to learn and work in a different way and apply that to their life as they go beyond that. So that might be staying within research. As you've heard, we really have a need for growing that evidence base. We have a fantastic evidence base, particularly around qualitative work. But I think we need to think about other ways to capture data, as Alan has talked about. 
And the students will get that. They'll get training in both quantitative and qualitative methods. But also we want to explore new ways of working, say, with people with lived experience, working with more creative and arts-based methods to collect data that are going to be meaningful, not just for people across arts and cultural sectors, but other sorts of sectors like dare we say, the health and social care sectors, where we know actually that the lived experience and the anecdotal word can have a, a really powerful impact on those individuals. And some of those examples Alan talked about, you know, when, when you share those with clinicians and with scientists, they still have an impact. And so it's it's breaking down some of those, I think, systematic barriers that we know exist across arts versus science. Um, and I guess finally, for people who um, are interested in, in um, outside of research, going on to live that work in a practical way. So they might be wanting to go on and be a sort of creative health practitioner, um, whether that's working for an arts organisation like a museum or an arts centre, a community organisation that are interested in social prescribing or link work or other aspects of community health. And I think we, we will see new opportunities in that area. But the link workers are just one example of that. We're seeing uh, recruitment across those areas uh, burgeoning in many uh, primary care networks and trusts. Um, but also I think we will see new posts arising around this nexus that Alan talked about, uh, focusing around communities. So I think those students who are interested in um, that sort of creative approach to how they might apply this notion of creative health, we're really keen to attract them. And they might be somebody who's already working in this space, who wants to sort of um, augment their knowledge and apply different uh, concepts, methods, and take that forward, or just people who are completely new to it, but have been inspired perhaps by something they've heard or been engaging themselves, perhaps their own creative endeavours. Well, not for me as a politician to advise you on what the nature of your academic programme should be, but I note that part of uh, what the students will be doing when they, when they undertake the mass is a dissertation, and there should be abundant opportunities for people to uh, develop their dissertation, working with uh, practitioners out in the field. There's going to be a, leadership is going to be decentralized. It has to be. It's no good waiting for permission from on high um, because bureaucracies move sluggishly and competition for funds is always ferocious. But what we've been doing at the National Center for Creative Health is uh, finding individuals working in the health service at all kinds of levels who are already passionately committed and who are doing work that's, that that's, provides very exciting models for other people, including people on the mask, to take an interest in and their fellow practitioners, their fellow professionals to emulate. And, and that's why we've, we've, we're, we're, we're developing these hubs, as we're calling them, in, uh, in West Yorkshire, in Shropshire, in Gloucestershire, in North East Essex and Suffolk, because in each of those places, we have found local leaders of the NHS who are passionately committed to the arts and health and who themselves aren't waiting for, for, for formal bureaucratic opportunity, who are, who are just doing it. And we want to gather up the evidence of what they're doing. We want to encourage them, hold hands. Indeed, we're, we're linking them up with each other because they were working in relative isolation before. And uh, I hope that there will be a whole series of models there that can be studied and reported on, which will go into the corpus of literature uh, and, uh, and help to build the evidence base and help to solidify the, um, the new culture. Not that it should be rock solid. It should always be fluent, fluid and creative. 
but to, to, to help it gain strength and influence. And Alan mentioned the community dissertation projects that we talked about right at the beginning. And I think for me, that's the biggest selling point. So I think students are excited about the idea of doing a research project with an organisation. We're hoping that at least uh, one student will come and work with us through the, the work of the National Centre for Creative Health. That would be much more policy focused. But we've got a whole range of partners, including Arts Council England, Natural England, have offered to host them through to then individual community, local organisations. And we've actually been experimenting with these sorts of research projects with community partners through our module Arts, Nature and Wellbeing, which we run the past three years through our BASC in Arts and Sciences. And we just had some fantastic opportunities of students working with community organisations on really different sorts of projects. It might be identifying new audiences to reach out to and then co-developing and co-producing new community programmes. It's been things like um, doing evaluations for existing programmes. Students have got involved in helping to draft strategic plans for organisations. Um, and so really very varied writing grant applications One student help write a grant application. And so brilliant opportunities, I think, for students to get that kind of on the ground application of research and practice and bringing that together with policy and thinking about how all that fits together. I think so students who are excited about that opportunity to work with community partners. I guess that's the biggest selling point of the mask. We've got such a wonderful and kind and generous set of supporters that we're really excited to be working with. I hope you're going to be flooded with applicants. I'm sure you are. <laughs> and of course, anyone who is interested in applying or finding out more about the mask in creative health at UCL, go check out the website. It's very easy. Or just type in creative health mask UCL into Google and or your search engine of choice. And I'm sure you'll be able to find absolutely tons of information. And the week that this podcast will be coming out is sort of a big launch week, I believe, for the mask. So there'll be information everywhere for anyone to, to go and find. Well, next week is a mental health awareness week. So um, I'm giving a lunchtime lecture and I'll be talking a little bit more about these sorts of topics with a focus on health inequalities. And then that evening, in fact, uh, we're doing a, a, an event so students can sign up. So, um, yeah, exciting times. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been lovely to chat with you. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. A really lovely enlightening chat there about the new Master of Arts and Sciences in Creative Health at the University College London, UCL. We'll pop all of the links that you could need into the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed it. Keep an eye out on Twitter for the UCL Mask account, which will have all of the details that you could need about the brand new degree programme. If you feel like it's something you'd like to do, pop on over and apply. I hope you've enjoyed this work and live episode. I had a great time recording it. Some really brilliant, interesting and important ideas there. And I look forward to seeing what comes out of the new Master of Arts and Sciences in Creative Health degrees. Thanks as always to Nicholas Patrick for our music. And don't forget to keep up with us on all we do on Twitter at Shelf Healing. Mm-hmm.